Los Angeles Fashion Week begins in October in this, the biggest clothing manufacturing center in the country. But what do you find when you go beneath the clothes? Not nudity, but something really more revealing. How the world's wardrobes are made and at what real damage to the planet and to humans who create your $10 bargain. Before Dana Thomas, there may not have been a job description for an investigative fashion reporter, but she certainly claimed it. In her new book, Fashionopolis, The Price of Fast Fashion and the Future of Clothes, she goes far inside sweatshops and boardrooms, washing machines, stores, laboratories, and showrooms to find out about the ravages wrought by cheap, disposable fashion and the work of both technology and conscience to remedy it. The good news for L.A. is it's the largest apparel manufacturing center in the country. Part of the bad news is half of the people who work in it are undocumented, apparently working in sweatshops. What are the consequences and the impact here in L.A.? Well, the consequences, you can see these sweatshops, so they're sort of like in plain sight. It's a shame for L.A. because it is such an important garment industry that so much of it is underground, essentially. Because the things are made in the USA, get to carry a made-in-the-USA label. And begs the question of maybe we should be IDing our clothes by how they're made, not where they're made, because obviously where doesn't really confer anything. It's also a great loss for Los Angeles, just simply in terms of things like revenue, because these folks, they're undocumented, they're paid poorly. They're paid so poorly, they're paid $1 or $2 an hour, maybe $3 an hour. They're not paid for overtime. And sometimes at the end of the month, they aren't even paid what they're due. So it would be really wise of the city to crack down on these sweatshops that are in plain view. I know Los Angeles has a lot of big problems, but considering it's the largest garment industry center in the country, you'd think that this would be a really important issue for the city. In the last 20, 25 years, when the mania for fast fashion for more and more clothes has sped up, between 2000 and 2014, the number of garments doubled to 100 billion annually. That's worldwide 14 new garments per person per year on the planet. How have the consequences of this gone unreckoned with for so long? Because we have so many other fish to fry, and also because we don't really know how our clothes are made, which is why I wrote the book. My inspiration for this book were two other books that I just adored. One was Fast Food Nation, and the other was The Omnivore's Dilemma, which were both about the food industry. And when you read those two books, you go, wow, I had no idea that the fast food industry was so dark and treated people so badly, and the food was really scary. I mean, you knew it wasn't good for you, but you didn't know it was that bad for you. On so many different levels, socially, economically, financially, health-wise, like lots of different ways. And then the same thing with The Omnivore's Dilemma and Industrial Farming. So I wanted to write the same thing about the fashion industry because we all get dressed every day and we don't understand what's behind a pair of blue jeans or how our clothes are made, where they're made. We know that it says made in Bangladesh, but what does that really mean? So I went to Bangladesh and I tell you, this is how it is. And these are the survivors of the Rana Plaza factory collapse. And here is what a sweatshop really looks like. There are very good people trying to change the system with slow fashion, growing indigo in Tennessee, spinning organic cotton in Manchester, England in an old mill. But there are change makers trying to make it better. There's some good stuff and there's a lot of bad stuff, but mostly we were just really ill-informed about something that was really a major part of our lives. What's in that dye that made your synthetic, the synthetic indigo that made your blue jeans blue? If you read what was in there, you would go, hmm, am I putting that up against my skin? I'm not so sure. 
Part of your story is about NAFTA and how NAFTA was supposed to create this great free trade zone when you began to discover, as many clothing manufacturers and designers did, that you could really save money by sending jobs out of the United States. In theory, on paper, if you were an economist and you crunched the numbers and you lived in your air-conditioned conference room with some other PhDs, and a free trade zone between Mexico, United States, and Canada made a perfect sense like we have in Europe. But the wealth inequality and the income inequality between Mexico and the United States and Mexico and Canada was just too great to make this an even trade. And business saw the great advantage of moving everything to Mexico and then further down the peninsula through South America and then across Pacific to Asia. What they discovered very quickly, too, which is a very key difference between NAFTA and something like the EU, is that there was no oversight. So these jobs moved offshore. The prices were cheap and there was no oversight. So they were sweatshops. And there was no health inspectors, safety inspectors, and then that carried on across and around the world. And that's when it really did spin wildly out of control, at the time that globalization was taking off. What was striking, too, was how the chain of manufacture gave the designers plausible deniability. It walled off each part of production with contractors, subcontractors, sub-subcontractors, so they could say, I didn't know this was a sweatshop. Or I didn't know that it was happening there. That's what even happens in L.A. We call it the fractured supply chain because they contract somebody and then those contractors, subcontractors, subcontractors. They do these raids in sweatshops and they find these labels of these companies. And then the companies say, well, we had no idea. We had just contracted A and A sent it to B who sent it to C. And we lost track of it. Now, that's one thing if you have your manufacturing done halfway around the world and you're doing everything by email and you never even go see what's going on. But this is within the city limits of Los Angeles. If you don't have control of your supply chain and it's just around the corner, then you're not running your company very well, and you should be held accountable. Fast fashion can be so environmentally damaging. It can be polluting. You have a striking figure about water use. It takes 5,000 gallons of water to make a T-shirt and a pair of jeans, and some chemicals, the byproduct of denim, are killing off streams and rivers in parts of the world. I'd always heard that the garment industry was one of the greatest users of water, but I had no idea it was to this degree. Thank goodness there are innovators like a company I write about in the book called Genologia out of Valencia, Spain, who have come up with a super cool high-tech way of reducing water to process genes, or finished genes, as they say. And it reduces the use down to about one glass of water per pair of jeans, and that's recycled for several weeks. And they're working on reducing it to zero waste of water. This is super important for L.A. because it is the center for jeans finishing in the country and one of the largest in the world. And so I hope Genealogia, or it had some competitors who've come up with similar systems, are going to work with these finishing houses in L.A., wash houses, to reduce their water use, especially in a state like California where water is so precious. And Happily, one of the companies that has recently contracted Genealogia is Levi's. So they're going to reduce their water usage around the world to one glass of water per pair of jeans. This is immense since Levi's is the largest blue jeans producer in the world. I hope it leads the industry into being a cleaner, cleaner, cleaner business. One point you bring out in the book is how much waste there is, because in fashion, you never know what people are going to like, what they're going to buy. So things get made that don't get sold and get thrown away. 
And then people buy immense amounts and get rid of those after wearing them once or twice. The average garment today is worn seven times before it's thrown away, which is crazy. And it must mean there's a lot that are never worn. And in China, I recently heard the average is three times. And what's more, we throw them away. We throw them in the trash. Only 1% of all garments are recycled, which also is kind of crazy. So we have to come up with ideas, new ways to extend the life of our clothes. It could be swapping. That's what my teenage daughter does with her friends. And then you can resell at places on consignment. And then there's renting. We can rent our clothes instead of buying them. So then when we're tired of them, we don't throw them away. We just return them. There's loads of alternatives to throwing away with our clothes. We should never throw away clothes. You can give them to the home for battered women. You know, those women leave the run away with nothing but the clothes on their back. They could use a new dress. Hang on for just a stitch in time to hear more from Pat Morrison Asks. Hi, we hope you're enjoying this LA Times Studios podcast created by California journalists. At the LA Times, we are committed to bringing you the story of California because that story can easily become a global headline or even a podcast. If you want a fresh perspective, subscribe to the LA Times. You'll be supporting the production of more podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit the latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. There's so much waste with leather, too. 50 million animals killed every year just for shoes and handbags. You have pioneers like Stella McCartney who go leather-free and insist on leather-free. H&M, the huge retailers, temporarily stopped buying Brazilian leather because of concerns that that industry contributed to deforestation of the Amazon. Can you talk about changes that designers are making to help put the brakes on this waste, leather, animal lives in fashion right now? Absolutely. I mean, the leader in this, or the, I think are sort of like the godmother, the fairy godmother in a way, in this movement is Stella McCartney. And she is a woman of conviction. In part, that was because she was raised in a household where her father was probably the most famous hippie in the world. This was her upbringing, no leather, no fur, super vegetarian. She has been godmothering a really cool company out of Brooklyn and now New Jersey called Modern Meadow, and they create what's called biofabric material that is essentially leather grown in a lab. They code the DNA, they grow the leather in a lab, they can grow it to shape, which is very interesting for things like the automobile industry where they grow it into the shape of the car seat and you just flip it on like a slip cover. It's clean, clean, clean and less damaging to the environment. 3D printing seems to hold so much promise that if you like a dress, you can order it online, order the instructions, download that into your 3D printer and make it at home. Well, that's what it is, at least in theory. We'll see if that's how it comes out. It still feels a bit George Jetson-y, right? But then if you told somebody 30 years ago that we would be walking around with iPads and iPhones and you had everything in your whole life in, a, in this little thing the size of a little bit bigger than a credit card, they would say, are you crazy? So, <laughs> you know, maybe this isn't too outlandish either. The one thing that you advise and the easiest thing to remedy some of this is for people simply to buy less. Buy less. We used to buy less. Sales of clothes have been coupled or more in the last 20 to 30 years. If you walk into an old house, LA has got these fabulous craftsman houses from the 20s, and you look at the closet, they're small. 
And now, you know, we take the second bedroom of the house and we turn it into a walk-in closet because we have so many clothes that we don't know what to do with them all. So clothes have never been cheaper than they are today. I discovered while working on the book that Hattie Carnegie, a a wonderful New York retailer in the 1920s and 30s, had a mid-range, middle-market line called Spectator Sports that sold for the same price, about $19.99, that clothes sell for today. It was known then as the secretary special. 80 years ago, and I'm not talking about the same price adjusted for inflation or the same price. So how much has the price of gasoline gone up since then? How much has the price of a home gone up since then? And yet we're paying the same amount for clothes. That kind of puts things in perspective. Looks like we overdo everything about our clothes, including washing them. One of the other things we can change that's very simple and will have an enormous impact is that we just wash our clothes less. The man who told me this works for Procter & Gamble. I mean, they want us to wash our clothes. That's their business. And he said, wash your clothes less for several reasons. Wash them on the short cycle, not the long cycle, because you're saving energy and you're giving longer life to the garments. Wash on cold water instead of hot. You're saving energy, not heating up the water, and they will still get clean. When you wash your clothes less and you wash on the shorter cold cycle, you're releasing less microfibers into the water system because the heat warms up the fabric and releases them, and the longer you wash it, you release them. It's weirdly like hints from Halloween, but on a global level, and I urge everyone to do it. Do you think people really care about the misery of sweatshops, the impact of the environment, and all of the consequences of fast fashion, disposable fashion, when they go shopping? I do, when they know about it. When you don't know about it, you don't care. But when you do, when you find out about it, you go, I had no idea. Then you look at the clothes a bit differently. A generation or two ago, before NASA, we knew people who made our clothes, and we knew how to make clothes. We had home net classes. We knew how to sell. That all disappeared in the last 30 years, and therefore, we don't invest any sort of value or emotion into our clothes like we used to. We don't understand what it takes to sew a button on a jacket, and therefore, we don't care. And we've been very cavalier and casual with our clothes simply because we don't know. And that's why I wrote this book, to inform consumers, people, this is what's on your back. This is what you're putting on in the morning. This is what goes into it. And we should really have a long think about it. Did writing this book change the way you shop and dress? Absolutely. I mean, I always kept things a long time. But I also started renting for special occasions. I had an event at the console festival and I rented the gown for it. When I speak at conferences, I rent a new suit so I look really snappy. I come home, I send it back and I'm not cluttering up my house with stuff I don't need because I don't wear it very often. I've changed a lot of the way I look at my wardrobe and how I'm living and dressing every day and I hope that readers will too. Dana Thomas, thank you so much. My pleasure. Anytime. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's edited and engineered by Mike Heflin. Be sure to subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and you will never miss a podcast.